0: What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Cat Brooks. Over the weekend, we saw the Israeli state level brutal and deadly attacks at Gaza. We also saw tens of thousands of people across the globe take to the streets in the name of Palestinian liberation, including an upwards of 9,000-person march on the streets of San Francisco. Until now, 2014 had been the deadliest year on record, with at least 2,251 Palestinians murdered in Gaza during 50 days of Israeli assault, according to data from the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. In just the last week, with the Israeli assault on Gaza, 2,329 people, have been murdered, according to the latest figures issued by the Ministry of Health in Gaza on Sunday. However, reliable those numbers are or are not, uh, given the chaos that is happening on the ground there, we're going to discuss what's going on with Curry Peterson Smith, Michael Ratner, Middle East fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he researches U.S. empire, borders, and migration. Good morning, Curry.
1: Good morning, Cap.
0: Gary, thanks so much for being on the show. I don't, I don't even know where to start, but I, I think uh, where we've got to start is painting a picture of what has happened in the last seventy-two hours um, in Gaza. What did the weekend look like for Palestinians?
1: Well, um, I mean, the level of catastrophe is really hard to um, to even grapple with, but Israel has. First of all, continued its bombing of people who uh, are trapped, of course, in this enclave that Israel has had a blockade on for 16 years, not letting uh, people in or out. Uh, last Sunday, um, or actually it was Monday, uh, Israel began what they called a full siege, saying no food, no water, no fuel and no electricity um, allowed, uh, into Gaza, which is a war crime. Emma, you know, it's, it's a violation of international law. Israel of course is in violation of many international laws, but this one speaks to the responsibilities that an occupying force has over occupied territories, including, of course, guaranteeing the basic necessities, uh, like food and water and so on. Uh, so this was a violation and this is what people in Gaza have been dealing with. They've been trapped, Uh, Their food is running out, their water is running out, their electricity is spotty. The hospitals, um, which themselves have been attacked by Israeli forces, uh, are running out of supplies and, of course, struggling with the lack of electricity as well. Uh, And, of course, the numbers of people being killed are going up and up. Um, It's also the case that of that large number of of Palestinians killed in the past week, over 2,600 700 of them were children, 700. So um, it's really a humanitarian catastrophe. And it's also the case that a few days ago, Israel announced to people, residents of uh, in the northern half of Gaza, that they had to leave, that they had to move to the southern half. The northern half includes Gaza City, which, of course, is the population center of the Gaza Strip. Um, 1.1 million people were told that they had 24 hours to move uh, south because Israel is planning a ground invasion um, of of the the northern part of the strip. Now, it's logistically putting putting aside the ethical problems of telling 1.1 million people to leave their homes, it's logistically not possible to move that number of people, um, and especially to do so that quickly, particularly because Israel has bombed the roads. They've bombed the infrastructure that would allow people to travel. The UN has made it clear that it's logistically not possible, um, but that's the order that Israel gave. And so it's evident to me that Israel um, is saying this so they can say, well, we warned them before doing a ground invasion, which, of course, would would lead to mass casualties. Uh, they, they know that it's not logistically possible, uh, but they're saying this as, as kind of an alibi, which is something that Israel has done repeatedly when attacking Gaza. So it's a pretty dire situation and Israel is trying to escalate it to make it more dire.
0: Follow up to that, you you said this this is a war crime, and, and of course they've been Israel has been committing war crimes for decades. At this point, Curry, who's responsible for holding them to account for violating that international law?
1: Well, that's an important question. I mean, crucially, uh, you know, there there are international structures, of course, um, like the International Criminal Court um, and, and other institutions of global governance. Um, you know, the United Nations, which has, again, um, been sounding the alarm on the humanitarian crisis. Uh, but crucially their key ally, the United States, which, um, uh, of course in the past year and a half has all of a sudden become so interested in the question of international law as It pertains to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You know, all of a sudden, uh, we're concerned with, uh, the violation of other countries' sovereignty, we're concerned with uh, what an invading and occupying force does, um, and yet none of that is applying to uh, the U.S.'s key ally, Israel. And so, of course, you know, th- this means, of course, that people in the streets, you know, who, who, who you mentioned up top, the, the 9,000 people who mobilized in the Bay Area, the thousands of people who mobilized across this country and around the world, We are the ones who are going to have to uh, push for accountability because at the moment, the U.S. has given a green light for these violations of international law.
0: Let's talk about the United States for a minute. I was going to do it a little later uh, in the interview. Um, The United States said that they were going to evacuate Palestinian-American citizens from Gaza, citizens whose family and loved ones are stuck here or vice versa, Telling folks in Gaza to make what could be up to an hour's drive under the threat of being bombed to one pathway out into Egypt. Um, It's not that the United States does not have the technology or know-how to to get folks out. A couple part questions. One, is this a matter of will? And two, where is the will of the U.S. to evacuate all Palestinians who are under the siege that Biden finally acknowledged uh, had nothing to do with anything were innocent civilians?
1: What line is he dancing, Curry? Absolutely. Well, this is absolutely a matter of will. I mean, it, it not only does the U.S. have the power to evacuate any number of people from Gaza, the U.S. Right. has the power to say to its friend Israel, don't do this invasion. Actually, we we, we are calling on you to do a ceasefire. Uh, the U.S. could easily Biden could end this today uh, if he told Israel to to do a ceasefire. Instead, the U.S. has been doing the opposite. The U.S. has been sending weapons. Uh, The U.S. sent the the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State to go to Israel personally to extend their solidarity, (laughs) as they put it, with with Israel. Uh, It's essentially an endorsement of the military operation that is underway. Now, they have in recent days said, well, of course, we hope that Israel respects human rights. Uh, but their actions speak louder than their words. So in terms of the, the specific question that you asked about Palestinian Americans, us citizens, uh, the word on the ground is that these folks have heard nothing from, uh, the us embassies in the region. Uh, and so they're trying, there, there are people who are trying to get out. Of course, there are many people in Gaza who want to stay, you know, the, the the, many residents, the majority of residents of the Gaza strip are already the descendants of refugees uh, displaced to Gaza when the state of Israel was created in 1948. And so the Gazan folks who I know are are saying their families don't want to leave because they don't want to be refugees again. Um, And so there are those who want to stay. And for those who want to leave, there's no way out. Let's stick uh, with the U.S.
0: for just a couple more minutes, Curry. I want to talk about, um, how what is happening in Palestine is and has the potential to increasingly impact Palestinians in other countries like those here in the US in terms of increased surveillance by the government um, or uh, vigilantes or hate crimes. Um, We just saw a young Muslim child stabbed to death in Chicago. Um, We've seen the doxing of students at Harvard. Um, who've received tons of backlash, including rescinded job offers, companies publicly saying they will not hire them, a gross violation of First Amendment rights in this country.
1: Um, make that link for us. The ripple effect here. Absolutely. I mean, how, how devastating, uh, the death of this six-year-old child in the Chicago area. Unfortunately, it is exactly the result of the kind of anti-Palestinian and Islamophobic racism that has been saturating the mainstream media, uh, which is pushing hard a narrative that Israel is defending itself. Um, that Israel is besieged by this Islamic threat. Uh, and I listened to Jonathan Greenblatt, the head of the anti-defamation league in an interview on MSNBC on Sunday. And he said that this was an Islamic threat, that it is connected to Iran, that there is essentially a kind of transnational, shadowy Islamic threat. It is very much the same rhetoric uh, and the same narrative that folks who lived through the, the um, aftermath of the 9-11 attacks
0: exactly. will
1: remember. Um, and that kind of racism then 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, was meant to justify a level of incredible violence that the US was about to unleash over the the next two decades. Uh, And so similarly, the kind of the the level of violence that Israel is carrying out now and that the US is supporting, it's only possible that that kind of thing flies with this dehumanization of Palestinian folks and of Muslim folks. And that's what we've been seeing in the mainstream media and predictably it is leading to violent attacks against Palestinians and Muslim folks here.
0: That was actually a, a piece of the question. Thank you for tying it to nine eleven. That's exactly where I wanted um, you to go. Um, I remember living through that and the the horrors enacted uh, upon um, Arabs in this country and around the globe. Um, mainstream media's culpability. I mean, for the journalists that repeated falsehoods like. You know, I I won't even say it, but the things that they said were happening to babies, et cetera. um, How do we hold these people to account?
1: You know, the well, one is it's extremely important to have alternative media like this. Um, So, gratitude for you and for your work. Seriously, you know, I mean, this is critical right now. And I hope that this is one of those moments where people see the dissonance between the kind of narratives that they're seeing in the mainstream media and hearing and what's actually happening on the ground. I mean, if, if if one knows that Israel has killed 700 children in the past week, then one knows that, you know, the notion that Israel is acting in self-defense simply doesn't add up. And so I hope that this is a, a, a moment where a lot of people question mainstream media. Uh, but I think that, you know, one of the things that's very um, uh, first of all, Im- important for the movement, for those of us who do advance Palestinian rights to include the media as part of what we need to engage, right? We're not only pushing the U S government, which th- that is the big push right now is the, again, president Biden could end this today if he said that Israel should have a ceasefire. Um, and so that is the push I think. But we also need to think about—it's it's not just the U.S. government; it's also the U.S. mainstream media um, and, and pushing them uh, and challenging their the the, the falsehoods that um, that they spread when they spread them. One of the things that has been very important, um, and I think makes what's happened in what's, what's been happening in Palestine and the way it's talked about in the US different in recent years, and certainly a little different right now, despite the, the kind of horrific onslaught of anti-Palestinian dehumanization, is the fact that there's a certain coming of age in this country of Palestinian America. Um, and that means that, you know, Palestinian folks who have been pushing for a long time to be part of the conversation. Now are some part of the conversation, not nearly as much as they should be. But Noda Ericot gets invited to CNN and challenges the falsehoods. Um, Ayman Moyadin is on MSNBC uh, and challenges the the kind of false uh, narratives. And so that kind of thing is extremely important as well. That's actually a good segue to to my next question because, you know,
0: I've I've been a a, a hope and an accomplice. Uh, in the fight to advance Palestinian rights for, you know, over two decades at this point. And what I saw over this weekend, over this last week, really, is unprecedented support for Palestine on the streets, the United States and around the globe. Can you talk about what has happened in the political fabric um, of this country um, and, and maybe in other places as well over the last decade that makes this possible? I mean, I remember there were marches with hundreds of people I don't know that I recall marches of this this magnitude in my
1: life. Well, that's extreme. Yeah, that's extremely important. I'm glad you brought it up because, of course, this is um, this is in many ways a desperate situation. I mean, Israel has really made it clear that they want to carry out genocidal violence, um, and they're on the verge of doing so. And uh, it's extremely urgent that we speak up. But in this moment of crisis and disaster, one can forget, um, the gains that we have made in terms of a very different conversation in the U S about Palestine than in past years. And I think you were right, particularly the past decade, I would say there's been actually a sea change, not in terms of U S policy, which remains, you know, steadfast with Israel giving aid to Israel weapons. Um, you know, defending Israel on the world stage, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of the discourse, in terms of the conversation, it's quite different. And a, a huge part of that is uh, the campaigning led by Palestinian folks from uh, Palestine. And so the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign, which is led by the the BDS National Committee based in Palestine, that was put forward as a campaign meant for people around the world to engage in a nonviolent way to uh, both cut off um, economic support for Israeli apartheid and have a conversation, to intervene in the conversation uh, about Palestine, right? Um, And that has been so successful that Israel and its supporters have been deeply troubled by it. I mean, the, the Israeli defense ministry uh, has a focus on BDS, which is a nonviolent uh, force, you know, um, but they see that as a key threat to the Israeli state. It is the case that um, dozens of states in the United States have outlawed, uh, have passed legislation banning BDS uh, in this country. Uh, It is the case that the French Supreme Court has uh, ruled BDS uh, illegal. You know, these are governments that are afraid of the power of BDS precisely because it has been so successful. And it has been part of leading to this kind of sea change in the discourse. The other thing that has to be said, one, one other thing that has to be said is Students for Justice in Palestine is an incredibly important student organization that, again, has come of age since being founded in at UC Berkeley. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are now SJP chapters in every major city in this country and many small cities and college towns. And what this means is that if you have gone to college in the past decade, you have likely encountered a campaign or an argument that affirms the humanity of palestinians that is huge that has all led to uh, much more sympathy and solidarity with palestinians the last thing i'll put on the table is the movement for black lives the kind of black-led uprisings that we saw in 2020 uh, and the ones in years prior uh, which not only have there been uh, links between Black Lives Matter activists and Palestine um, and, and Palestinian activists and, you know, activists in the movement for black lives have called attention to Israeli apartheid. But it's also the case that people in this country are seeing this place with different eyes impacted by what we've come to call the racial reckoning. Right. And understanding that. The killing of black a black person by the police is not just an isolated incident, but has an historical context that's actually rooted in slavery. I mean, this is the kind of thing that the Movement for Black Lives has pushed forward in recent years. Uh, and it has it is revealed to many that this is not a problem of uh, just individual racist police officers. But actually, there's some deep systemic racism uh, really at the core of this country. And I think people who now look at the U.S. with those eyes then look over at Palestine and say, wait a minute, some of this looks actually very familiar. Um, yes. And again, that's not a coincidence because – u.s. police train with israeli police right there are all kinds of links between uh the u.s. government and the israeli government and so it's it's of course they look familiar because they're comparing notes all of these things have led to a very different conversation around palestine and uh, in the u.s and much greater sensitivity to racism against palestinians
0: yeah i mean i it you know, as I was marinating on this over the weekend, thinking about the connections between Urban Shield and the Stop Cop City movement and the subsequent RICO charges, and what's happening in in Palestine, and the importance of us all really sitting in those linkages to deepen our analysis, right? Because then that deepens the the organizing. Curry, so we we see this unprecedented, amazing uh support by by the people right in the united states and uh, and across the globe for palestine and yet we've we've seen so-called progressive electeds like even Mayor Karen Bass, who literally, of Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. who literally cut her organizing teeth on ending apartheid in South Africa, Mm -hmm. unapologetically side only with Israel. For Mm. Democrats like Bass and even President Biden, who are actively supporting Israel or giving us milk toast platitudes like the president has in recent days, how out of step does this put them with large swaths of their voters? And how center stage do you think this issue is going to be as we barrel towards the 2024
1: election? Well, that's a really important question. You know, when, when we think about just the past year and a half and the war in Ukraine and what that has meant for Biden, and frankly, what it's meant for much of the Democratic Party officialdom, they have, and Biden in particular, has gotten some of the benefits of being a wartime president without the U.S. actually being at war. That is, the U.S. isn't losing people. You know, the U.S. troops are not in harm's way, and yet uh, these notions of, of of national unity, these notions of um, you know standing with the little guy against the the big bully, uh, and that the U.S. can be uh, kind of heroic, uh, that is Biden has been able to ride that. Um, and and uh, I should say, you know, I. Uh, Am deeply uh, opposed and have been horrified by the Russian invasion um, of Ukraine. But I think that the way that the U.S. government is approaching it is something that's altogether different. And and as well as the various corporations, I mean, when you go to get an Uber and you open your app and it says Uber stands with Ukraine, you know, that, that is not about human rights. Um, you know, there's right. something convenient about uh, saying, you know, we are on the side of, of democracy and all that's right. Um, as opposed to the bad things, um, you know, something that is, you know, if it wasn't, if it wasn't evident how false that is, you know, even in what the U.S. is doing with Ukraine, including sending cluster bombs, which are which will be devastating for civilians, if that wasn't evident there, then it should definitely be evident when we're looking at Palestine. I mean, you know, I think it's crystal clear who is the violator of human rights. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's Israel, um, and that has been the case, uh, you know, of course for, for for many decades. But this year, my goodness, we have the most far right Israeli government in history, uh, a government whose ministers openly identify as fascists, um, who celebrate the, uh, you know, killing of Palestinian civilians, et cetera, et cetera. That is the side that the U S has been aligning itself with. And so to go back to your question, I wonder if Biden thinks, uh, that, you know, uh, again, there can be a kind of, um, Uh, New wind in the sails of this notion of, um, you know, the U.S. playing this positive role in the world, Uh, you know, this kind of run terror redux. And I'm concerned that much of the Democratic Party officialdom really aligns with that. And I think the challenge is for those of us who are activists and organizers and who are calling attention to what's happening to Palestinians right now to make it so that there is a political problem for Democrats aligning themselves with Israeli apartheid.
0: Yeah, I yeah. I I I want to tug on that that thread just a little bit more and then I, actually, I want to go back to the yes, region. Yes. Um I mean I've I've heard people say and more than one um that around this particular issue, I'm talking about black folks in particular here, yeah. um expressing frustration that their entire voting lives they've had to choose between the lesser of two evils and the United States government support of Israel and the genocide uh that is rapidly um Encroaching up, uh, upon folks in Gaza is enough to make them stop doing that, and the consequences be damned.
1: Right, right. I mean, well, that's that's extremely significant, you know. Uh, and and again, I think that um, you know the two party system is quite. They've they've done a very good job of perfecting this situation where our options are so limited. And frankly, they're hoping uh, that people in this country just don't pay attention to what happens elsewhere in the world, especially black folks who they, uh, want to rely on, you know, as, as a uh, loyal democratic party, uh, voters. And certainly that's the context that I grew up in, you know, as a black person, uh, that of course we vote Democrat, uh, and, and so on. Uh, but when one looks not only at the policies that the democratic party presides over in this country, but certainly, uh, what they're doing abroad, one must ask questions and, and demand, uh, something different. So, Yes. I mean, I I, I think I think, though, it is it is on us, those of us who see these contradictions very clearly, you know, between uh, a party that is supposed to be uh, standing for civil rights and human rights and so on, but is supporting the very opposite um, uh, in terms of what Israel is doing. We have to push that um, and, uh, and and, you know, I think expose that that difference between the rhetoric and the reality.
0: All right, Curry, I want to go back to the region. Uh, we started the interview talking about, or one of the earlier questions in our interview was talking about the the U.S. saying, and I'm putting that in air quotes, that they're going to evac evacuate uh, Palestinian Americans from the region. Well, the way that they're they're in theory doing that, right, is through one um, one roadway in into Egypt. Talk to me about Egypt's stance here. Um, what should they be doing, and why aren't they just
1: Flinging the borders open. Right. Well, that's extremely important. I mean, Egypt, you know, it's extremely important to talk about Israeli apartheid and U.S. complicity, but one must name Egyptian complicity. I mean, you know, Israel has imposed this blockade on Gaza for 16 years. It has only been possible to uh, be successful because of Egypt. Egypt, you know, Gaza is essentially a rectangular strip of land bordered, um, uh, on the land on two sides by Israel on the sea, um, uh, or on, on the third side by the Mediterranean sea and on the fourth side by Egypt. So Egypt controls one of the two land borders with Gaza and could end all of this, uh, overnight, you know, could end the blockade, by letting people in Gaza come and go freely, and by letting food and medicine and all kinds of supplies in, saying we are actually not going to align with uh, this blockade. However, uh, the Egyptian government is very much aligned with it. Um, It should be remembered that as, as crucial a US ally as Israel is, Egypt is also uh, a key U.S. ally. I- Egypt gets billions of dollars in U.S. military aid, um, and uh, has been has been happy to play this role, uh, truthfully, and and doing so right now. So even in light of the current crisis, the current uh, government uh, headed by um, a dictator uh, named Sisi, has you know he said that Egypt has is, is absolutely not interested in opening opening the gates and letting people in Gaza out or letting supplies uh, go in. So Egypt is, is absolutely part of the problem here
0: and then curry tugging some more on that thread talk to us a bit about the 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 fiscal and political implications for the entire arab region in this moment
1: what should we be watching out for well this is really interesting because before all of this the, the news regarding Israel, uh, in the region was all about the so-called Abraham Accords. It was about this set of, uh, agreements of, of so-called normalization agreements between Israel and various Arab states, uh, Morocco, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, uh, and Sudan. Um, and the big prize the being, uh, normalization with Saudi Arabia. Um, now it should be said that de facto, Israel and Saudi Arabia have been on the same side for a long time. They've both been um, kind of viciously anti-Iran. They're both uh, key U.S. allies that are receiving all kinds of U.S. weaponry. Uh, They line up together in any number of ways. There's this kind of fiction that actually – uh, both Israel and the Arab uh, – various Arab states benefit from this notion that uh, for Israel it is surrounded by all of these hostile powers uh, and it's it's all on its own. Um, and for these Arab governments whose populations tend to be very much in support of Palestine uh, and, and of Palestinian rights uh, – it's convenient for them to say, oh, yes, of course, we stand with our Palestinian brothers and sisters and we don't stand with, uh, you know, the Zionist regime. When, in fact, for many years there has been uh, just collaboration, frankly, um, uh, whether that's uh, through intelligence sharing and all kinds of other um, security cooperation. In Over the past couple of years, that cooperation has come out into the open with these um, agreements. Now, this war... This current situation, this crisis is really upsetting the apple cart because part of the notion here um, was that there could be quote unquote peace without having to negotiate any kind of settlement involving the Palestinians. That is, Israel and Saudi Arabia could have normalized relations and um, you know, diplomatic relations and flights going to Riyadh and Tel Aviv and so on, and they wouldn't have to worry about the question of whether Palestinians uh, get their rights, let alone whether uh, Palestinian uh, land uh, is, is, is freed. Now, There's a real uh, crisis, and the eyes of the world are on what Israel's doing to Gaza, and that is upsetting that whole project.
0: Curry, Peterson, Smith, I want to spend uh, our last few minutes together sort of looking forward, if you will. I I mean, I think, you know, we're we're all clear that we are in real time, what what a little bit feels like slow motion, watching uh, genocide happen. Israel has said it's going to level Gaza, and I think we should believe them when they say that. It's interesting to watch people try to like <laughs> interpret what that means. Uh, it means right. what it means. Right. Yes. When we get to the other side of this, with the expectation that Gaza will be leveled with no foreign aid, infrastructure completely devastated, what does rebuilding even remotely
1: or possibly look like? You know, I think that, I think that we should focus instead on the fact that Israel has not leveled Gaza yet. They have mobilized troops, they've stated their intention, but they have not yet launched this massive ground invasion and therein lies an opportunity to prevent it. And I think, so. therefore, that all of our efforts should be about preventing this from happening. You know, there's a notion of genocide that we learn in school in this country, that it's this kind of thing that happens in history. Um, and that it is this, um, I don't know, as though as though there's a, it's a sort of natural phenomenon, when in fact there are institutions and there are people that make decisions. Israel has made a decision or they are trying to make a decision, you know, about escalating this violence massively. The United States has made a decision to give them a green light. Egypt has made a decision to lock uh, people of Gaza in. And so we must make a decision and say, you know, we will not allow this to happen. Um, And, you know, a minute ago I talked about Democratic Party officials being – uh, aligned with what Israel is doing, there's always an opportunity for them to say, you know, I've changed my mind, um, and actually, we do need a ceasefire. Um, and I think that we need to push that. You know, once again, Biden and the State Department, you know, the White House, they could end this immediately. And I think that that needs to be the push because because the the kind of devastation, you know, when one entertains the question of what it would look like for Gaza to be leveled, it's it's too much to even, um, it's 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 when one can't even one can even conceive of it, you know, it's it's so so impossibly violent, and so, but it hasn't happened, and therefore we have an opportunity to prevent it from happening.
0: And I think this is, I think, this is my final question for you, Curry. Um, In order for that to happen, our voices must be heard, right? Yes. Um, The attempt to silence the voices of dissent in this moment is incredulous. I've never seen anything like it. Your thoughts that voices supporting Palestine are being shadow banned and shut down on social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, the same platforms that we utilized, right, to to push forward the movement for Black lives. Uh, And you made those connections a little bit earlier.
1: What are the short-term and longer implications of that? Well, there are massive implications, you know, but I I think that we should, in a way, take it as a, a testament to our humanity, you know, that they, they are fearful of what happens if we actually have, if we actually exercise our right to free speech, if we actually are allowed to let information fro- flow freely, and people in this country see the reality of what Israel is doing that that will be such a problem for them because really Israel sits, I mean, there, there's a there's a utility in, t- in terms of the kind of world that the U.S. is leading um, and that the powerful countries of the world are leading in the 21st century, a world of borders and surveillance um, and where corporations dominate and where raw materials are extracted and we keep burning fossil fuels. I mean, all of those things Israel has been such an important part of. Israel has said, we have pioneered border technology. We have pioneered surveillance technology. Here it is for you, we have developed um, a way of controlling the movement of a refugee population. Now you can use it, and so many countries the, around the world are using what Israel has developed, and 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 yet you've got this problem, this pesky population of Palestinians who refuse to surrender, who refuse to leave their land, um, who who keep on uh, protesting and keep on existing, and so it makes sense. That the corporations that run, you know, the tech companies that run social media, that the news media, et cetera, they don't want us to access the reality of Palestinian humanity. Um, And it speaks to the importance of us doing everything we can to make sure that people do know the reality of what's going on in Palestine, because when people do, it is possible to organize folks to actually intervene and not just let history happen, but change history and prevent a genocide.
0: Curry Peterson-Smith, I so deeply, deeply appreciate your work and your analysis. It is always, I mean, we're never talking about happy things, but it is always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us this morning.
1: Likewise, Kat, I'm so grateful to be here. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast
0: where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive.